Well, good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning, this first Sunday in December. And I was just remembering this morning that it was a year ago that Jill and I came uh, looking for a place to live, and uh, we found one. And so <laughs> we're still and we're still here. So that's good. Um, let's let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word says that uh, the light who is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and could not overpower him. Father, we recognize that we live in a world, we live in a time when there is a great contrast between that which is dark and that which is light. And we see this contrast, Father, growing ever deeper, ever greater, ever stronger. And rather than have us be fearful of this, you would encourage us, Father, to rejoice with an even greater joy because the darker the darkness, the brighter the light. And the more opportunity we have to shine as the light that you have made us in Christ, the light that you have given us in Christ, and so during this Advent season, we pray, Lord, for opportunities to shine the light of Christ in our words and in our deeds, in our prayers, O Lord God, for our community, for our state, for our nation, for our families and for our children, for our parents, for those, Lord God, who are suffering from illness, for those, O Lord God, who are suffering the pain of separation, for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our hands to take advantage of those moments when we can pray, just be with, and should your spirit prompt us, Father, to offer a word of encouragement and hope. We thank you that we worship the one who is hope itself, hope in human form, the one who is the light of the world and who has come to show us how to live as light and salt. Lord God, we pray that you would now bless the preaching of your word, the hearing of it, the application of it. We thank you that you have forgiven our sins and that have made a way for us to be clean and pure and holy in your sight. Lord God, we come before you always hungering and thirsting for righteousness trusting you to satisfy that hunger and that thirst as you have and as you do in your word and through your Son, through the power of your Holy Spirit. You are a good and gracious God. You are a loving and life-giving God. You are a Savior who reaches down to where we are who comes into our mess and our depravity and our confusion and you bring order and peace and grace. And all for the purpose of lifting us up, lifting our face to behold the glory of the one who made us in his image and likeness, that we be bent no more but be perfectly, perfectly aligned with the will of God and the Son of God through the Spirit of God to the glory of God. 
Father, we ask and pray and give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This, uh, continuing through the Advent season, I have uh, two texts to read this morning, one from the Gospel of John, one from Paul's first letter to Timothy, all dealing with Christ as uh, the Word become flesh. And so from John 1.14, a very familiar verse from the opening prologue of that marvelous Gospel, where John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Paul, about 30 years or so after the birth of Christ, writes these words in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, the season of Advent anticipates what C.S. Lewis referred to as the central miracle asserted by Christians, which is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. When we talk about the incarnation, we are talking about an historical event, something that actually happened in our time, an event whereby Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a flesh-and-blood human being, and lived for a while among us. Whereas Advent anticipates the Incarnation, Christmas celebrates it. So Advent is that season leading up to the event that we know as Christmas. So Advent anticipates the birth of Christ, the Incarnation of Jesus. Christmas celebrates it. Jesus Christ, who is the, the timeless, eternal Word of God, crosses over into our time. He steps into our lives, all for the purpose of becoming flesh and blood, that He might redeem us through His life, through His death, and through His resurrection. And in the text that I've chosen this morning, the apostles John and Paul tell us why Jesus came, which is really the, the big idea for the, the message this morning, that Jesus Christ clothed himself with our flesh so that we could be clothed with his grace. That he wrapped himself in our flesh, that we, be, that we could be covered with his mercy, that he took on our flesh, that we could receive his forgiveness. Jesus clothes us with his grace, says John, so that we could see his glory. It's the, the content, if you will, of John 1.14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those are marvelous words. But at the same time, these words, if we have read them long enough, they become so familiar to us that we can easily overlook the awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, miraculous content of them. It's, it's like waking up every morning. Some of you, I uh, come down Overlook uh, Avenue where I live in Halden, and I come around this bend, and there is the city before me. And the first couple of times, the first couple of weeks when I would drive to 360, and I would come around that bend, and the city would be before me, it would just take my breath away. It's just this marvelous skyline. Now it's just sort of I go right by it. And we can do that with the Word of God. We can know a word so well, we can know a verse, and become so familiar with it that we miss the power of it. We can overlook, if you will, 
the truth of it. Because not only, John says, not only did the Word, the eternal Word, become flesh, but He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, He says. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, miraculously, we have seen His glory and lived to tell about it, which is what John is bearing witness to, which is what Paul is bearing witness to, which is what the apostles bore witness to, and which countless millions of Christians continue to bear witness to, that we have beheld the glory of God and the Son of God and have lived to tell the marvelous truth about this encounter. When John wrote his gospel in the midst of a a culture steeped in mythology and paganism, the Roman gods, the, the Greek culture as well, the Greek gods, If you know anything about Greek and Roman mythology, you know that the Greek and Roman gods in that mythology would often take human form. But these visitations that they would encounter, engage in, would not last very, very long. Because the the gods of the Greeks and the Romans started beneath their glory to live any longer than they needed to in order to get what they wanted from their mere mortal worshipers. So as far as the gods were concerned, it was beneath them to live among the people that worshipped them. That's not the case with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is not the case with the eternal word who is the glory of the Father come in human flesh. John describes the incarnation of Jesus becoming human. Literally, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, moving into our neighborhood pitching his tent, settling in right next door so that he can live with us, that he can weep with us, that he can mourn with us, that he can laugh with us, that he can teach us and show us a way to live that is completely foreign to how we have been raised and understood what life is about. And so this idea of God encountering us in human form is not just a simple temporary visitation where he's looking to extract from us some kind of worship, but he comes instead to give us something. He comes to give us himself. He comes to give us life. He comes, in the language of the Old Testament, to tabernacle among us, which is really the implication of what John says here when He talks about Jesus dwelling among us. It literally means he pitched his tent. He set up camp. And the imagery that John is using here comes straight out of the Old Testament and Israel's experience with the tabernacle in the wilderness. If you go through, uh, go back to the the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, and you'll see there that the tabernacle was sort of like a, a portable uh, a portable shrine, a portable temple. Didn't look like much from the outside, but inside it was uh, well furnished with gold and all manner of beautiful carvings and engravings and embroidery on the, the furniture and the curtains that were in it. And the priests of Israel would carry the, the tabernacle with them all during the, the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. That whenever the Israelites made camp as they wandered through the wilderness, the priests would set up the tabernacle, and when they were done, the glory of God, a cloud would descend upon the tabernacle and fill it with His presence. The tabernacle then symbolizing the the presence of God in Israel's midst. 
And whenever the glory cloud of God would rise from the temple, the priests would disassemble, take apart the tabernacle, pack it up, and they would move to the next place where the glory of God would lead them and settle and show them when they set up the tabernacle again. By the time Jesus is born, the tabernacle has been replaced by the second temple. The first temple, remember, built by Solomon, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. We've been studying that as going through the, uh, the prophet Zechariah. The, the, the temple, like the tabernacle, was divided into two rooms. You had the first room, the outer room, that was referred to as the holy place. And in there, you, you had essentially three basic items of furniture. You had the the lampstand, the menorah, which was kind of resembled a tree with six branches going out from the side and one central trunk. And there were lamps on each of these branches with one in the middle. And then there was a, an, a, an altar where the priests would burn uh, incense, incense representing the prayers of the people, the prayers of the priests. It was a sweet-smelling aroma. And then there was a, a table on which were laid out 12 loaves of bread uh, called the bread of the presence, and these loaves would be replaced weekly. Then, at the far end of the temple, the west end of the temple, separated from the holy place, was what was called the most holy place. And it was a beautifully embroidered curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, cherubim and things like that. The temple essentially resembles a garden. If you go through and, and you read uh, the description of it in Exodus, what you have in the temple is a description of the garden, if you will, of the Garden of Eden. And we see this replicated again in Revelation. In any case, inside that second room called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place was a gold-covered box known as the, called the Ark of the Covenant layered with gold. It had two angels that were sort of facing one another, wings touching, faces looking down on the cover of the ark called the mercy seat. There was no light in this room. And only one time a year, the high priest would enter into that room. They have to imagine what that would feel like. There's no one else in the temple when the priest goes into the holy place, carrying a bowl filled with goat's blood. So he's walking by himself, parts the curtain, and it's completely dark in that room. And that goat's blood symbolized that whatever atonement would be made for the sins of the people of Israel. Over the Ark of the Covenant, God told Moses, there I will meet you, my glory will descend. So imagine you are the high priest. You are carrying this bowl filled with blood. You've already made sacrifice for your own sins. You've sacrificed a bowl for your own sins. And now you're bringing this bowl, hoping and praying that God will accept it because you're going to sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat and around the Ark of the Covenant. There's no light. The only light in the room is the glory of God. And you know as the high priest from Moses' encounter in Exodus 33, God told Moses, no man may see my glory and live. But here's the thing. When Jesus is born, there is no ark of the covenant in that most holy place. 
So where does now the glory of God reside if it's not located in the most holy place? Because there's no record of the ark being rebuilt when the second temple is made. And John tells us where the glory of God is to be found. He's found in the eternal word who became flesh, the Son of God who is full of grace and truth. That the glory of God is to be encountered in Jesus Christ. So that everything that's associated with the function of the temple, everything that's connected to the temple, says John, is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's festivals, it's presence, it's priesthood, it's sacrifices, and it's glory. All of these are taken up and personified in Jesus Christ. That he is, in fact, as the writer of Hebrews says, the radiance of the glory of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, remember, as I said, in the Old Testament, no man could see the glory of God and, and live. When Moses asks to see God's glory in Exodus 33, God tells him, no man can see my glory and live, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, my glory will pass by. and You will see my back. So in the Old Testament, the glory of God, because of its holiness, beauty, majesty, purity, and power, kills sinners. But in the New Testament, when the glory of God appears in bodily form, in Jesus, it doesn't kill, does it? It gives life. That's why Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, I came that you may have life and life to the full. So that as Jesus seeks us, because that's why he is sent, he is sent to seek and to save that which is lost, which is us. He is seeking us not to kill us, but to save us but to redeem us. He lives among us so that he might identify fully with all of our weaknesses, all of our joys, all of our failures, all of our triumphs for the very purpose of finding in him everything that we long for in terms of peace of mind, peace of heart, and peace with one another, and ultimately in peace with God. It's why John can write of Jesus in that marvelous prologue in John chapter 1 that in Christ was life, and that life was the light of men and women. To be able to just grasp that, just sort of, as Ray Ortland Jr. says, to stare at the glory of God until you see it, to stare at the glory of God in Jesus until you see it. One of, one of the things I appreciate about where uh, Jill and I live in our, our apartment up in Hilden is, uh, um, is seeing the sunrise every morning. I walk into the kitchen, and, and there it is. It's just coming over the eastern horizon. And, and I see that sunrise every morning, uh, you know, long as it's not cloudy. One morning, <clears throat> this past Tuesday, in fact, the sunrise was especially breathtaking. I can't describe it. it, was, it was to, because to describe it, it would just, it would just ruin it. All I can tell you is that it was, so, it was so gloriously beautiful 
that while I was filling my coffee pot with water, it overflowed with water because I was just stunned by the beauty of this magnificent, everyday, natural, glorious event. I mean, it just took my breath. I was absolutely silent because to say anything at that moment would have ruined the moment. I don't know if you've had an experience like that. The closest thing that I can remember to having that kind of experience is the, the, the day that I held my, our, our firstborn child in my arms minutes after Jill had delivered him. And I stared at this little life with these little cloudy eyes staring up at me, not knowing really who I was other than the fact that I knew he was my son. That moment of just being so overwhelmed that there were no words. John wants us to have that kind of experience when we behold the glory of Christ, when we behold the glory of God. I don't know if you've had that kind of experience. But when John writes that he is the the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, that's the impression he wants us to have, that we are left speechless, breathless, wordless at that moment. Because the only one who can inspire that kind of glory is, in fact, God himself in Christ. If you haven't experienced that kind of glory, I invite you to stare at it. The way that Andrew Matheson encouraged us a couple of weeks ago to stare our eyes out at Jesus as we behold him in Revelation and now see him again. And I think there's, there's a real reason why John describes him one way in the gospel and again the same way in the Revelation because he writes the same book and the same Lord appears to him. That marvelous expression that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, that God shines in our heart the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of His glory in the face of Christ. That's what Advent prepares us for. This, every morning, as part of my devotional routine, I read a selection from a, a devotional by Paul Tripp called New Morning Mercies. And yesterday's entry uh, for December 4th, um, Paul Tripp talked about how we are, in fact, designed for glory. Uh, Let me read. It's an extended quote. It's not up on the board because it just came late, but bear with me. I'll read it slowly. And uh, Tripp writes this. It said, We human beings were hardwired for glory. Glory orientation was woven into the fabric of our hearts. We were designed this way so that we would be able to take in all the glories of creation And so that those glories would point us to the one glory that is truly glorious and alone able to satisfy our hearts, the glory of God. This means that we are always living in pursuit of some kind of glory. Either our hearts have been captured by the temporary glories created by the world, or by grace they have been captured by the eternally satisfying glory of God. We are working for our own glory, pursuing some created glory, or living for God's glory. But we are always living for glory. So the question is, for whose glory are we living? I think just as I am challenged on a a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, to think about why I do what I do as a pastor... 
I think it's, it's worthwhile for us to examine our hearts during Advent. Why do we come here each Sunday? Why do we worship God? Why are we encouraged to worship God? I know some of you are hard in that pursuit, and you are doing very well to pursue His glory and to worship His glory. And then there might be some here who, this is what I do on a Sunday. I do this because my family wants me to be here, or my wife wants me to be here, or my husband wants me to be here. But I don't really get anything out of this. I'm just showing up. You're living for another glory. God would want us to live for His glory. God would want us to live for a glory that is far more lasting, far more satisfying, far more joy-giving than anything this world has to offer. The Gospels reveal the glory of Christ in a variety of ways and in a variety of venues. If you want to sort of stare at the glory of God in Christ until you see it, read the Gospels and see where Jesus reveals the glory of God in healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf, giving speech to the mute. Hear His glory when He tells the woman who is caught in adultery, where are those who are going to condemn you? And neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We taste His glory when we are there standing with Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus as He weeps with Martha and with Mary. We are in awe of His glory when He raises Lazarus from the dead simply by calling His name. We are there as well to behold His glory when He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead telling her, Talitha Kum, little girl, arise. We're there when he raises the dead son of the widow of Nain. We see his glory there. We see his glory when he feeds 5,000, and he does it again when he feeds 4,000. We see his glory when he walks on the water in the midst of the storm. We see his glory when he's asleep in the boat, when he should be steering the boat. He's sleeping in the boat at the stern where the rudder is. And when the disciples say, don't you care that we drown? And Jesus says, of course I do. That's why I'm asleep. Because I know the one who controls the storm. And I want you to be more fearful of me than the storm. That's when you see the glory of God. We're intrigued by his glory. When we hear his conversation with Nicodemus at night, telling him, that unless one is born again, they cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. We are there again to hear his glory when he talks with Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world or else we would be fighting for such a kingdom. We are confronted and comforted by his glory when he tells Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Or he proclaims himself to be the good shepherd the light of the world, the bread of life, or the way, the truth, and the life on the night that he's betrayed. And finally, we are challenged by his glory when he submits to the Father's plan, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but your will be done. There is only one way to respond to that kind of glory, and that's with awe, that's with reverence, that's with worship, and that is with submission to the one who submitted himself to his Father's will. 
In his book, How God Became King, I like how N.T. Wright summarizes the magnificence of the glory of the Incarnation. He, he writes this. He says, The Gospels offer us not so much a different kind of human, but a different kind of God. A God who, having made humans in his own image, will most naturally express himself in and as that image-bearing creature. A God who, having made Israel to share and bear the pain and horror of the world, will most naturally express himself in and as that pain-bearing, horror-facing creature. That in enduring, in other words, in enduring the horror and the pain of the crucifixion, Christ enters into our very suffering. He endures the very pain that we are destined for apart from the grace of God through faith in Christ. And elsewhere, right, would like writes like this, what would it look like then for the kingdom of God to come and Jesus to put things to right? Because that's why he comes. It's not just simply to display his glory, the glory of God, but to put things right. Well, it would look like sinners like you and me finding forgiveness. It looks like a blind man receiving his sight. It looks like a hungry woman being fed a lost son or daughter finding their way home, a homeless person finding a home, a single person learning to, to treasure their singleness as a gift, a marriage that is brought back from the brink of divorce. What would the glory of God look like in our lives? It would look like things like that. That Jesus clothes himself with our flesh so that we could be clothed with his grace. And he does that as the glory is the only begotten of the Father. And then in moving on into 1 Timothy, Paul would tell us that Jesus clothed himself with, um, with his grace so that we could bear witness to his glory. And Paul, in describing the, the, the content of our faith, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, he, meaning Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, in all likelihood, what many believe here Paul is doing is he's quoting from a, an early Christian hymn. And the subject of the hymn is the immeasurable glory of Christ. The hymn begins with Jesus' birth, and it ends with Jesus' resurrection. Now, why would Paul do that? Why would he quote a hymn? Well, very simple. Hymns are simply theology set to music. Hymns were one of the earliest forms of religious instruction. They're an early form of catechism. You want people to know about their faith, teach them to sing it. I dare say you'll probably remember the lyrics to the songs than you will my sermon. Because the songs have put theology to music. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not offended by that. That's a good thing. Because hopefully the songs will drive you back to the sermon. <laughs> um, think of the, the hymns we sing at Christmas time. Think of the hymns that we sing at Easter time. Think of the hymns we sing in between in terms of declaring the, the theology and the, the basic instruction that we have. The mystery of godliness that Paul refers to here refers to Jesus being revealed or manifested in the flesh. Now, don't be put off by that word mystery, because we tend to think, you know, 
a thriller kind of a thing. You know, you're on the edge of your seat, and there's, don't open that door. Don't open that door, because there's something behind. That's not the kind of mystery Paul's talking about here. In the Bible, when you see the word mystery, particularly the way that Paul uses it, he's referring to a long-held secret that is now revealed, or if you will, a public secret. Something that was once not known, but now has been revealed so that everyone can know it. Jesus is that mystery of godliness. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the long-anticipated Savior. He is the, the stump from the, the, the branch, rather, from the stump of Jesse. He is the, the, the branch that Zechariah and Jeremiah speak about. Jesus, uh, if, if, and he is the mystery of godliness for two reasons. That if, first of all, if he hadn't ever been revealed to us, we wouldn't know who he is. If he hadn't self-disclosed himself to be the Son of God, if there hadn't been the revelation of that, we would not know who he is. And then secondly, being God um, in human flesh, Jesus is beyond our comprehension. We will spend eternity knowing him, and we will never know him fully. We will see him, we will be like him, says John in his letter, but we will never fully know him such that we will know everything there is to know about him. But the more we stare at his glory, the better we'll know him. It's like in the, A Christmas Carol when uh, Scrooge enters into the, the second spirit that visits him is the ghost of Christmas present, and there's this big jolly fellow that he sees. Come on, if you've seen Muppet Carol, you know what I'm talking about, right? Big jolly guy, and he says, come in and know me better, man. That's what Jesus does when he invites us to stare at his glory. Come in and know me better. Stare, learn, read, worship. The better we know him, the more easily we will recognize the mysterious and infinite and life-changing character of his grace, his mercy, and his love. And this godliness that Paul talks about, what is that? It's a sort of a high-sounding word. It's like, how can we attain that? Very simply, because all godliness is, is faithfulness in action. It's putting into practice the very things that Jesus tells us we ought to practice and ought to do. It's, it's what we read about in our catechism this morning. It refers to a lifestyle that is grounded and motivated by faith in Christ. It's not doing what, tells us, what God tells us not to do, and it is doing what God tells us what to do. That's godliness. God is an act of God. So our faithfulness must be an act of faithfulness. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but the grace that saves and the faith that saves is not alone. So we have to do the works that God created for us to do. He prepared for us to do beforehand, from eternity. There are good works that God has prepared for us to do after we have come to faith in Christ practicing what Jesus preaches, loving one another just as Jesus loves us, loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, going out and making disciples, raising our children in homes where the, the gospel is taught and preached, serving, doing the things that would bring the kingdom of God to bear where we work, being salt and light, telling the truth, Dealing honestly with others and with one another. And the fact that Paul talks about this mystery of godliness, Christ being manifested in the flesh, 
Well, that tells me, it reminds me rather, there's a, a line, we're going to probably sing this hymn somewhere during Christmas. If you remember as a kid, you're probably saying, hark the herald angels sing, right? Usually, if you're me, always off key, because you just go way up on hark and then anyway. But there's a line, there's a verse in hark the herald angels sing that teaches the incarnation. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Jesus Christ, who is a virgin-born Son of God, became flesh in order to save us from the wrath of God against us for our sins. That's what Paul is referring to with regard to this mystery of godliness. That the very glory of God wrapped himself in our curse-laden, sin-weakened, self-exalting human nature to be the ultimate expression of God's infinite, grace-filled, life-giving, sin-atoning love. But not everyone saw his glory nor did they receive him as such. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men in Isaiah 53.3. John tells us in his prologue again that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Despite all of the credibility of Jesus' claims about himself, there are still those, even today, who refuse to believe that he is, in fact, God in human flesh that Christ is more a principle to be followed, a, a universal ideal to be strived for, than an actual person. Which is nonsense at its heart. Because if Christ is simply an idea, if Christ is some sort of universal notion, then we are our own saviors. That's impossible apart from the grace of God in Christ. Because every miracle Jesus performed, every demon he cast out, every time he challenged the status quo of the religious establishment, confirmed that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for that specific role. But, you read what Paul writes in 1 Timothy and you read what Paul writes at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. It's his resurrection from the dead by which the Spirit fully vindicates Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Paul says that in Romans 1.4. And then, accompanying all that, is the idea that he is seen by angels. And so Paul is building his case bit by bit, like Andy Bernard making stairs you know the office. Right? He's making his case. He was seen by angels, points to the fact that throughout his ministry on earth, angels ministered to Jesus. They announced his birth. They comforted him after he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. An angel strengthens him while he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. An angel of the Lord descends from heaven to roll back the stone, sits on it, so that people could enter the tomb and see that he is not there. Angels speak to the disciples after Christ ascends into heaven. And according to Revelation 5, angels welcome Jesus back into heaven. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that angels are intensely interested in God's plan of salvation. So whereas the eyes of us mere mortals are often beclouded by the fog of our own doubt and small faith, angels see him clearly. And they worship him wholeheartedly. And then Paul says, 
there is this angelic testimony to the reality of who Jesus is. But then there is also the proclamation. He says, he's proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That before, remember, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he issues what's known as the Great Commission. Go, therefore, uh, and make disciples of all nations, he says at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And Paul's ministry, along with the rest of the apostles, is proclaiming Jesus to the nations so that they may believe in him. That the purpose for Jesus coming in revealing his glory is to, is to free us from our addiction to our own glory. It's to set us free from pursuing that which we want to glorify and exalt in ourselves. Again, this extended quote from Tripp's devotional on glory. He writes, Jesus came to liberate us from our addiction to the glories that will never satisfy our hearts. He came to free us from our bondage to our own glory and our obsession with the shadow glories of the created world. He willingly died for us who are glory thieves so that we would find our satisfaction in and live in service of the glory of God. Jesus not only revealed God's glory on earth, he died so that the glory would be the final resting place of our hearts. So that the glory of Christ becomes that place where we find our ultimate source of rest, our ultimate source of being. That after being manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on in the world, Jesus is taken up in glory. A glory in which we now even have the ability to participate in through proclaiming Him, through believing Him, through seeing Him change lives, ours and those around us. This is the invitation of Advent. This is the invitation of the Gospel. To behold His glory and live, and then to reflect that glory outward. One scholar would look at, describes it this way, that if, God, if we are indeed a kingdom of priests through our, our Lord Jesus Christ, then what do priests do? We, ref, we take the vertical glory of God and we reflect it outward. We receive what God has given to us and we share it. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what God did in Christ. It's why when Jesus is described in Revelation 5, the Apostle John says they sang a new song. The angels sang and and there were many angels, he says, multitudes upon multitudes, thousands upon thousands. Can you imagine that choir? And we'll be among them, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. That's the testimony. That's the truth of it. And you have been made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ clothed himself with our flesh, that we might be clothed with his grace, that we might share it, that we might display it, that we may participate in it. I'll just end with this. In his uh, marvelous book, Miracles, which is really just a, a series of essays that Lewis 
C.S. Lewis delivered on the BBC during the Second World War. Uh, Lewis writes in the chapter in Miracles called The Grand Miracle, he writes this, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. God became man. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right, to recapitulate, repeat, in the womb, ancient and pre-human phases of life, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. This Advent, let us stare at the glory of God until we see it. Until we see that Christ comes down, only to come up again. And to do so in order to bring up the whole ruined world with him. That he clothed himself with our flesh so that we could be clothed with his grace. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, a hymn writer once wrote, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? That hymn was written in the context of thanking you for your, your death on the cross. We could say the same thing, Jesus, with regard to your incarnation. What language shall we borrow to thank you for coming in our weakness? for coming in the, in the frail flesh and blood and bone of our humanity, to come into the very midst of our mess, not to condemn, not to slaughter, not to kill, but to lift us up, to so identify with us in our need, in our selfishness, and to take into yourself all of those things that had separated us from you, that we might receive from you grace and mercy, compassion, forgiveness, life, hope, relationship, and connection with the very one who made us in his image and likeness. Lord Jesus, continue, continue to clothe us with your grace that we might share that same grace with others we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.